You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. We're still in Luke. You can make your way there. Luke chapter 1. It's a long chapter and a lot happening. You forgive me. I'm just looking at you for a second. I want to see who's here (laughs) and who's not here. We've been going through this story. It's it's nice uh, to get back into the story. I I love the story of Christmas. I remember as a young boy, my, of course, we had a Christian family, so my grandfather would read the Christmas story every year, and uh, that was always special. We weren't in a hurry. It was just nice to, yeah, there were presents under the tree, and, but uh, our family always tried to pull focus away from that to the Lord Jesus, and so he would read and, uh, and then pray. As a kid, you don't know much about your grandparents. You know only what you've been told by your parents. And most people say good things about their family. Usually, if you have a good family, if you have a decent family, if you have a lot of heartaches in your family, that's probably not true. But in our family, it was a nice family, so uh, we always heard good things about Grandpa Roy. But as he uh, uh, would uh, read and do that and just watch his uh, joy as we started to do the present thing, uh, I was raised with a, a sense of awe and Uh, gratitude for what Christ had done. I just always heard that, always thought about that. And uh, we took a long time to do presents. It took forever, but uh, it was worth it. Today we're kind of more in a hurry, aren't we? Kind of, it just seems like it. So just to pause and consider this story, because the story is unfolding, and I don't want to rush this story. Because certain things are happening that I think we need to go back and just pause and reflect on some of these truths that have much to do with us today, but certainly in that day as well. As we said last week, Elizabeth was about to uh, bear a son. She was just three months away from that in our previous text. Uh, Mary greets Elizabeth. Mary's just pregnant, and so uh, uh, they're uh, having a fantastic time together Elizabeth filled with the Spirit. She says things that are profound and unique, and she says those things about 
the one that's in Mary's womb. Then you come to uh, the spontaneous praise that Mary offers uh, of just uh, what God's doing and moving in her heart as she's filled with the Spirit of God. And she speaks out. We had that last week. In verse 56, the narrative says, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So we don't know if, uh, if uh, Elizabeth has delivered and Mary's still there or what, but it's very close to delivery time, obviously. So that was taking place. And, you know, Mary was there uh, right shortly after she realized that God had uh, placed through his spirit, impregnated her with baby Jesus. So this is all new. And she had left immediately, we understand from the text, to go see Elizabeth. So it's quite possible that her announcing to Joseph and others may not have happened until she got home because she was suddenly three months pregnant. At any rate, verse 57 comes. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered. And she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. And so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. That's a uh, obedience to Genesis 17. Uh, God instructing Abraham about that, that uh, males uh, would be on their eighth day after birth would be circumcised as a uh, part of the uh, uh, consecration to God and marking them through this. Uh, so this is just being faithful to that. And during that time, generally the child is named. And so it says they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. That would have been normal, is what it's saying. His mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. Let me pause for a second. That, I read this text, and so this is very personal. Right? I'm just going to tell you something personal. Uh, that I'm always irritated about. I'm just going to confess. And the Lord knows my heart. My parents, when they named their kids, they named my brother, who's firstborn over me, my brother was named by my dad's middle name. So he got the first name of my dad's middle name, Neil. That's cool. And then he was called Wayne. The middle name was Wayne. And like, I'm thinking, Wayne, where did that come from? That's not in the family. Like, who is Wayne? I used to ask that often. Well, then I come along, and I'm called Byron. <laughs> and all my young life, I would ask them, where did that name come from that you cursed me with? Because no one ever said it right all through high school. I was mocked for it, and Byron, and Byronovich, and all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And then uh, they gave me the middle name of my grandpa's first name. Now, my grandpa, I told you, my grandpa worked for Youngstown Sheet and Tubes. He signed all the paychecks. That's cool. Uh, I can say that about my grandpa, but it's him. I can say his name's Leroy, and that's okay, but they called me that. Uh, and, and for years, I wouldn't tell anybody my middle name. I, I just would say L. I just have an L. If some of you have ever seen me sign a signature, I'd be Byron L. Stewart. I'm trying to be... You know, trying to accept it. I'm still trying to accept it. But anybody who hears that would associate me with bad, bad Leroy Brown. <laughs> and everybody who would call me my name would have to sing them. Out. I hear you. I hear you. Just leave it alone. 
So names can be cruel, parents. Think about it before you name your kids something that's strange. And I used to say, if I'm named after Lord Byron, that's bad, because he was horrible. I never got an answer. Just heads down. <laughs> parents ducking, you know. So I'm saying that because when this is happening, there's an anticipation that, well, surely they will call him by his father's name because Zacharias was a righteous priest and everyone would have known that in this area. But, you know, uh, Elizabeth calls out, no. No, he'll be called John. And so, uh, you know, what is interesting is the crowd, almost like if you're on a, watching a, a, a story on TV or something, the crowd all turns heads to look at John. And, uh, you know, after she says no, and so they're sort of mumbling in verse uh, 61, they're kind of mumbling, there's no one among your relatives who's called by this name. They're, they're having a hard time with this. So they made signs to his father. This is where we find out that John was both mute and deaf. And so uh, they're making signs to him and trying to get him to respond. So he writes on a tablet, his name is John. And so they all marveled because they knew that John means the Lord is gracious. What a name. That's a great name. It's not Zacharias, but it's a great name. It's John. I love it because it's short. Never mind. John means the Lord is gracious. And so uh, as he does that, several things happen. First of all, it says in verse uh, 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his, his tongue was loosed and he spoke praising God. And it says, then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. You know, it's amazing. Now, John was silenced for nine months. He couldn't hear nor speak. For a priest, that would be pretty tough. He couldn't do anything like that. So he was sort of in his own little world, I'm sure. And, and uh, as he's released from this, he gives this praise. But the reaction of the crowd is very interesting to me because uh, they're, they're, they're just mystified by this and this whole scene. They, they, many of this crowd, you see, would have remembered they would have been there in attendance nine years, nine months earlier when John went into the temple and before the, the, the sacrifice who uh, on their behalf, he was praying to God on their behalf. You remember that in, in the first part of chapter one. This crowd uh, who were witnesses for that would have sort of thought about this all through this time that John, after he came out from seeing the, uh, this, this uh, uh, image of an angel that he was trying to probably describe to them, uh, he couldn't speak nor hear. And so for nine months, they're thinking, wow, whatever happened in there, that's an amazing thing itself. And then as they're sort of listening to all this and watching all this, they're, they're pondering all these things and they really don't know what to do with them. But it says fear came on them for what was taking place and all that they were hearing. And they kept these things in their hearts. Uh, on a side note from this, I was thinking about just, you know, you and I, as we uh, 
go through hard times. Some of us go through very tough times, sometimes valleys, sometimes difficulties and struggles that we may face. And as we go through those things, you know, it's typically uh, uh, normal for a human person going through suffering to sort of sometimes express the uh, tough time of that. And, and so it's not wrong to do that. And I think sometimes that's the nature of who we are. And so when we go through difficult things, sometimes we bear that on our expressions, in our conversations, in our, uh, how we just deal with life. And I want to remind us that, I just thought I'd take a moment to remind us of this, that when we find ourselves in those situations, as John was just coming out of one of those situations, and his initial words were this uh, tremendous praise to God, which we're going to read in just a moment. I thought, you know, for a believer to go through tough times and be able to hang on to the presence of Christ in the hardship, hang on to the gratitude in our hearts for our salvation, hang on to the praise that should come from our lips when sometimes we just want to be negative and express things in a sort of dark way. But to be able to sort of praise God in the midst of our suffering, like Paul and Silas in prison, to be able to do that sends such a message to people around us, especially in our families. I, I, I had, you know, as a kid, had a chance to witness some of my godly uh, relatives, aunts and uncles who had gone through hard times. My dear Aunt Virginia, who may even see this, she's still alive, she's 95. She uh, would only remember me if I said my name probably now. But Virginia uh, loves the Lord. She's in a nursing home. Uh, she demanded that her piano be put in the nursing home, so her room is really crowded. And I can imagine that they're probably telling her, stop playing at midnight, because <laughs> who knows when she's playing. She probably doesn't know what time it is. But she still remembers all the gospel songs, and she plays them and sings them as though she knew them yesterday. But I saw her go through some hard times in her life. And I can tell you as a witness, and when I speak at her funeral, I'll say this. She was always, always filled with praise. No matter what was going wrong. And most of the family knew. And she was always just joyful and full of praise. And that made such an impact on much of my family, especially me. And I praise God for that legacy. And I just want to say to you, that's a challenge to us, that when he does give this praise, it would have been normal for a person to come out of nine months of having been muzzled by God to maybe even just say, I can't believe it took that long. Wow, I'm so glad to be back. Hello, world. You know, he didn't do that. He's giving a, an immediate praise, which I'm sure was pent up and he was thinking about for a long time, knowing that God had closed his mouth because he was disbelieving. So I'm sure in repentance and in faith, he was primed and ready to say these things. I don't think they just came in the moment. And yet he was, notice he was filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 67. And then these words came out of his mouth for all to hear. What he's going to say, all followers of God, including you and I today, should be encouraged in our faith because he's going to speak about God, the God who graciously keeps his word. And that's so critical today. The God who graciously keeps his word. It's in two sections what he's going to share here. The first section is verse 68 to 75. And then that first section, that's talking about the coming Savior Redeemer. 
So he's going to speak about that. Then he's going to shift gears at verse 68, or sorry, at verse uh, 70, 76 and so on, uh, to the end. And he's going to talk about uh, the one who's going to come and prepare the way for the Savior, which would be his own son. So let's go back and just take a look at section one together, verses 68 through 75, as he talks about this coming Savior, Redeemer, and says several things that are really promises that God's going to do as he uh, just blurts out this tremendous praise. Let me start and read at verse 68. It says, blessed, blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Tremendous statement. Let's just for a second pray and ask God to help us understand and apply this truth to our lives. Lord, your word is sometimes deep and not always fully understood. We need your presence and your power this morning to open our eyes, open our hearts, enable us to ingest your word and understand what it says to us today. So, Lord, I pray for the person who does not know you, that they would uh, hear something that makes sense to them and opens their heart to you. I pray for the saint who has known you all their life, that there would be a sense of fresh gratitude for your word and for your work. Lord, help us to apply these things in a way that causes us to be living a life that is ready because we know you're returning. Now we ask you to do these things this morning and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God has visited and redeemed his people. That's the first thing he says in verse 68. He has visited and redeemed his people. Now, again, I just want to say before I get into the text here, there's something that King David had said to the coronation, at the coronation of Solomon, that I just want to draw out as this is being uh, said, stated by Zacharias. Zacharias may not fully be aware of this thought, but we're reading it so we can sort of take this sense. First Kings 148, and you don't need to turn. I'm just going to give you the phrase. In First Kings 148, here's what David says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given one to sit on my throne this day while my eyes see it. As I thought about this, and here's Zacharias giving this tremendous response. There's something so special in his life, I'm sure, and certainly in ours today, about being able to see the evidence of God's work in our circumstances, in those around us, and those things which we're praying for, or someone else's life. I pray for family and friends, and you do too, and we know that we want God to work in their lives. And 
I want most of all that they be receptive to God's word. And, uh, you know, when we hear reports and we see things that aren't going quite that way, we intensify our prayers. And what a wonderful thing it would be to be able to actually witness God doing what we're praying for. Does that make sense? That would be a great blessing. But in fact, this story and, and much of the word of God, especially Old Testament, the folks who were praying for many of the things they were looking for did not witness those things. But as we'll see, they still stayed faithful. So I guess I want to challenge us today that Zacharias is having a chance. Remember, he's, he's, he's up in years. He and his wife are in their, their 90s at least. And, and as you sort of process that, they've prayed all their life for certain things. And probably somewhere around you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, they might have stopped praying for a child to be born from them. I'm guessing. There's a point where you just sort of give up. But the Lord answers their prayer, and that's, what's, that's part of this uh, response that's going to be uh, spoken in, in a moment. Also, the fact that the uh, Son of God in Mary's womb, and that's sort of causing this response, and so that's fantastic. And they're alive to witness some of these things taking place, and that had to have been a glorious thing in their lives to have that opportunity. And so the, some of the things I'm praying for and there are things I pray in my private room on my knees. But when I pray, I so much want to see God do those things I'm praying for now. But you know what? I believe God's going to still answer my prayers even when I'm not here. You know what I'm saying? And I've seen that over and over in my family and other families, some of your families. So God's still at work, and we just need to keep praying faithfully and trust him and let him do what he wants to do. But obviously that's driving some of this. It's got to be exciting for him to be thinking all of this while he's stating this tremendous praise moment. Zacharias and Elizabeth were especially blessed. So uh, uh, here it goes. And so he had no idea yet, as he gives this tremendous statement, he has no idea really of the full extent of what he's actually saying. But he has a reference point. All of these who are making these statements have something they're referring back to, something that they would know in their mind. This must be happening. So I will take you just to uh, momentarily to Jeremiah 33. I know he went here. I know that he was thinking this in his mind at least one of the passages he would have been looking at in his mind about what is taking place through this Messiah that's going to be born. In uh, chapter 33, I'm going to start at uh, verse, uh, verse 7 just to identify the text. He's talking about, he says, I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return. So he's talking about the exiles who are in captivity. And he says, I'm going to, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I will cause, uh, this is God saying, I'm going to cause them to return. And then he says in verse 8, And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. And then it shall be to me a name of joy and praise and an honor before all nations of the earth who shall hear of all, all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. 
Thus says the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is desolate without man or without beast in cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of bridegroom and the voice of bride, the voice of those who will say, praise the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his mercy endures forever. Look at verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah in those days. And at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in all the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. I promise you that that's one of the things he's thinking. So as he's addressing and speaking, when he says the Lord has visited us and he has redeemed us, which is what he's going to say in this first section, uh, which is hugely important, but he doesn't understand the full scope of what that means. So today, you know, we look back, we can look back. He couldn't do that. We look back and we understand that God did visit his people. Yes, yes. And he offered redemption to them. Yes, just as he read. But it was something that was way deeper and broader and greater than anyone would have imagined. So he doesn't understand the scope of this. But let me remind you and I today, and if you don't know about Christ and the gospel, then please hear this. This is a statement made after Christ has died on the cross and risen from the dead. And the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, when he said this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so I can imagine if, if that was being addressed, if somehow... If uh, Zacharias had ever heard that, he would not understand that. But it goes on. Paul wrote this, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Okay, that, that, that's, that's interesting. Well, Paul then comes along in Romans 3 as well. In, in Romans 3, Paul sort of adds this in verses 21 to 24. I'll just uh, review some of this. And he's talking about the righteousness of God, which he says is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Okay, so God's righteousness comes on those who believe. And then Paul, of course, said, interrupted his thought to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then he comes back to his, his thought about those who believe being justified freely, you and I, by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I get so excited about the fact that what Zacharias is thinking, what most Jews listening would be thinking is that, yeah, this one who's coming in Mary's womb is going to be born and he's, he's going to save Israel. He's going to redeem Israel. Uh, we're going to be set free from oppression and we're going to have this glorious uh, new day when he rules and reigns from Jerusalem. And that sounds fantastic. That's what they're thinking. Somehow the idea that God's going to redeem them 
somehow they wouldn't have worked that out because they're still doing the sacrifices that have to continually be done. And so there's got to be some discrepancy in their thinking about what exactly is being said here, but yet this is what they're hanging on to. The next thing he says in verse 69, he says that God, back to our text, he says that he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. When you, uh, when you sort of grapple with this, you, you have to realize again that that's still in their minds reflective of the fact he's going to come, like it says in, in the text I just read. But there's another text that would have been fresh on their minds because it was written by Ezekiel, who would be a more, much more recent prophet let me uh, share with you out of Ezekiel 37, verses 24 to 26, what Ezekiel wrote about this. And he's talking about David, my servant, shall be king over them. Now, David's already gone. So this is, he's talking future. He's talking about the one who's going to come uh, in, uh, in the line of David. He's saying, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. So as far as Ezekiel's writing, Ezekiel is in his mind thinking that people, all people, all Jews will be faithful to the ceremonial law. They're all going to be faithful to staying pure as they come and continually sacrifice and maintain a, a walk with God. That's probably what he's thinking, verse 25. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. All these eternal statements that, uh, of, of the nation being brought back under one nation together with God as the leader for eternity, the, the, the root of David doing this, all of these things is what the reference that they're understanding. So when he says God has raised up a horn of salvation, yeah, they're thinking a uh, horn. The word horn means power or strength. Uh, so God's going to raise up someone who is a power or a strength of salvation in the house of his servant David, that's being consistent. So they all were thinking <clears throat> these thoughts that Ezekiel had stated. As Zacharias was stating this, I think he was in the same mindset, but God's plan is so different. God's plan always goes so far beyond what we know. And the mystery of him being raised up on a cross, a horn, a raised up a horn, Someone who's powerful enough to allow themselves to be the Christ, sinless, live a sinless life. That requires his power and strength over his own self and over the circumstances. 
He allowed himself to be that. He dictated all the circumstances that he would be uh, yelled at by a crowd to crucify him, crucify him. He was behind all of that, his power uh, instilling in that crowd to say that he was raised up on a cross by his power, not by his weakness. And after then he was buried and after he was buried, you and I know he was raised on the third day by his power. Right? This is something that Zacharias did not know. And so in that he paid the debt of sin's curse. And so on a true sense, we can all say, yes, he was a horn of salvation in the, in the way it, in its full meaning. Because only the power of God could have done such an amazing thing as that. Well, there's something else about this. The, the prophecy that he's giving here, it, it extends from the, and he doesn't know this, it extends from the, really the cross, the resurrection, all the way to the king's return as king of kings. But he doesn't know that. But the fullest meaning of salvation is seen in that text. The fact that Jesus Christ could do this for us. The, verse 71 talks about uh, that we should be saved from our enemies. That's true. But that's future. It hasn't even happened yet. If you watch the news, Israel is in a mess with enemies. Uh, we, we know that down through our own uh, awareness of history, there's been so much trouble and turmoil and struggle. But what's interesting here is that the, the greater understanding of this is that God would uh, work in such a fantastic way uh, to uh, bring about uh, this plan because, listen, if he had not allowed himself to be put on a cross and buried and risen on the third day, then all the sins that we're reading about, all the need for God's salvation that we read about in the Old Testament, all the accusations against Israel and Judah for their unfaithfulness to God that we read about in the prophets, none of that would be forgiven. When we read uh, back in Leviticus or when we read here in Jeremiah uh, or when we read in Ezekiel, whatever we find a text that talks about God's going to save Israel and save Judah, that's great. But God, uh, who must keep his word, could not even keep his word if Jesus hadn't died for sin. And that's centuries later in the future for Old Testament saints. That's why uh, uh, in the book of Hebrews, that text that has always been uh, something I've enjoyed to remind myself about. It's in chapter 11. You know the text where uh, the writer is reminding all of us that those who died in faith, he says in verse 13 of 11, those who died in faith not having received the promises but having seen them afar off were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Over in verse uh, 39, uh, verse 40, actually, of chapter 11. Talking about all the saints who went through suffering and trials. It says, and all these, verse 39, having obtained a, a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should uh, not be made perfect apart from us. So all the promises to uh, uh, Old Testament saints about God's deliverance and God's salvation and God's redemption, all of that is something that they were looking forward to and it could not happen until something that they didn't understand was this 
death of Jesus Christ had to take place to die for all sin, uh, pay for the curse that's over the human race, and then that they would place their faith in this perfect one who gave his life. That's not in their script. There's a few texts that talk about it, but they didn't understand it. it it's heartbreaking when you, I was uh, listening to a, uh, an interview with uh, a, a Jewish rabbi and uh, another fellow who was asking questions, and the text was Isaiah 53. And uh, the, the rabbi was being polite and listening and, and saying, we... Uh, we just, uh, we, we, we take that whole text another way, uh, just trying to explain it away. And the, the Christian who was sharing was impassioned to just share what he believed the truth was that was in that text. Most Jewish, most Jewish people just don't want to be faced with that text. They don't understand it. They don't accept it. But this morning, you and I can look back and say, Hallelujah, thank you, Lord, for doing that in my life, being the, the servant who suffered for me. He is a horn of salvation. He is all-powerful today. Sin has a hold on the world. Sin may have a hold on you today. Uh, and what I'm saying that, what I'm saying is that no one, no one can claim to be righteous. No, not one, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one can get to heaven based on their good works. The Bible goes on in Hebrews 9 and says this, it is appointed for men once to die and then judgment. That's because of this hold of sin on our lives. But Jesus Christ came to break that curse and set us free from that. And he offers that. That's why he's called a horn of salvation. He's all powerful and only he can do that in your life. And I trust somebody would hear that today. In verse 72 of our text, the last thing, kind of the major thing he says here, I've kind of put this together. God Perform the mercy promised. He's talking about the fact that he raised up a horn of salvation. Then he says that we should be saved from our enemies and so on. Then he says to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham and to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So there's several things that he's doing here. He's performed this mercy. And praise God for that. I wanted to talk about grace today. Mercy flows from grace, grace from mercy. Who knows which is first? But grace uh, is that thing which God then out of his abundant grace, out of his care and love has done certain things. He remembered his holy covenant, which we just saw. He, he keeps his promise of forgiveness and blessing to all those that we just read who are looking for that promise. He is keeping it by sending his son. And then he's granting uh, uh, that we will serve him, just as he blurts this out in verse 74, that to grant us that we uh, would be able to, uh, to uh, be delivered from the hand of our enemies and might serve him without fear uh, to holiness and righteousness. How can, that, how can that take place? And so he's doing that. He's going to grant that, as we'll see in just a moment. But it comes out of this uh, sense that Paul has written to us in Romans 6, I'm going to just read this to you this morning. Romans 6 uh, says this in verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Many of us don't think that we are slaves of anything. 
But as he says, if you obey certain things, if you're doing certain things, if your flesh is leading you down a certain direction, uh, you're a slave to that even if you don't think so. Whether a, a sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness And then he says, I'm talking about human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, uh, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. When Paul writes that, he's just saying we can be holy because we present ourselves now to the one who has purchased us with his blood. And now I can follow Christ And it's he who then works in me as I follow him to make me holy and to enable me to then serve him in holiness, as the word says back in Luke. And so when he says all these things, he has no idea really in his own mind of how that's all going to work out. But we know as we look back, and I praise the Lord for these huge truths that are being prophesied. And you and I get to sit back and say, I see this in my own life. I see what he's saying here happening to me and happening to those around me. As we uh, consider this, we're being led here to the second part of his prophecy now at verse 76 where he now shifts gears and now he's going to talk about his own son. And so Zechariah says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation uh, to his people and to uh, by by the remission of their sins uh, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet unto the way of peace. Another statement just to sort of declare what John his son is coming to do, who's about to be born, or who was just born, sorry. And so he's uh, just saying he's going to prepare the way in a sense. You're coming to prepare his ways and to give knowledge of salvation. When I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, when people were hearing John the Baptist talking about, you know, repent, the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand and calling people to repentance and so on, And as he was speaking and preaching, uh, some actually thought that John the Baptist was maybe the Savior. They they didn't really understand, but he wasn't the Savior. He was just someone declaring truth. And he uh, he was given the blessing of introducing Jesus to the world, a great responsibility. But when he talks about the tender mercy of our God, one of the things he's going to come and do is introduce this thing of mercy by the presence of the dayspring or the Messiah. As he uses that phrase, it's, it's him saying, this is how it's going to happen. It's not through me. It's through the one coming who is going to express his mercy toward us by his coming. And then he adds in verse 79, by his light shining in, in the darkness. He's going to come by shining his light in the darkness and guiding us to the way of peace. And so uh, when I was... Uh, young, and I heard thoughts about Christ and his gospel in my young life, 
I was processing all along in my life, being raised in a Christian home, hearing it all the time uh, in various different ways. And uh, it was uh, in 1967 when I heard uh, uh, Donald Ingram at a Youth for Christ rally speaking, who became later the pastor of John Shirley and myself in Maryland. And I, uh, I heard such an impassioned declaration about this truth. What I thought was curious was that, uh, okay, I was sitting in the back row in, in a huge 3,000-seat auditorium, so I'm in the back with my friends. There was a whole long row of us. There must have been 15, 20 of us sitting there. And uh, the sad thing was that I, I heard truth that day. And I, I, all I can put my finger on is that what we're reading here in this text was happening to me. Light was shining in my dark soul that day. And I couldn't just sit there and, and let it just come and go. It was too strong. Some of you have had this. And I was compelled when he gave an invitation to stand up. And I walked that long, long row all the way to the front with others. But my row of friends who were sitting there, I still know almost all of them, stayed there. And that's okay, except that many of them became 20, 25, 30, 35, 50, and never made a move. And sometimes I look back and say, what was that all about? I mean, why was I so stirred and no one else was stirred by this? Sometimes when I go home from church after preaching a sermon, because I'm not the greatest speaker, but when I speak and when I'm preaching, I'm preaching my heart out about this text. And what happens is sometimes I'm thinking, does anybody, where is everybody else thinking about this? Do they get as excited about this as I do? Or is this because someone thinks that, well, that's just what you do, that's your job? (laughs) But I praise God that he shined a light in my heart and he shined a light in many of you. I've talked to you. God has revealed to you his truth and it has awakened you to spiritual things. And God bless you for that, right? Because your life has been changed by the invasion of this one who shines his light in our lives. And so as John introduces Jesus, which is what he's doing, he's trying to turn the lights on. He was given this task. And I believe that in a sense, okay, his job was done. Jesus came on the scene and relieved John of what he was to do. Uh, But you know what? You and I, Uh, Somehow we're in the story because we are given the same task, really, that John the Baptist was given. We're given the task of being a light, shining a light into the hearts of others. We're we're supposed to address people the way John the Baptist did, uh, reminding people that there's one who's here, who's available, who can change someone's life. And that's what we do to share the story of God's wonderful grace. That's what we're supposed to do. He was given this task of calling people to righteousness through repentance and faith. And you and I are given the same task to call our, I guess, family and friends and maybe co-workers and maybe even strangers to righteousness through repentance and faith 
to the one who already has come and to the one who is soon coming again. I set out in the course of going through this because it was all about the fact that I just, I'm just more and more and more uh, being called by God to say this to myself and to you. I just believe he's coming soon. I just believe it's so soon. And everything we're seeing is just sending signals to us. And so, you know, when we go back and read the, the, the account in Matthew 24 and all the things that are said about signs of the last days, I just think these are starting to really happen in a very specific way. And that just tells me that there's less and less and less time for a person to hold out and to say, I'm not ready. I, I don't need that right now. And when you say that, you're assuming that the Holy Spirit of God will speak to you and convict you some other time. And that's not how God works. God visits his people, yes. But he doesn't just stay in your life every day and whisper little whisperings in your ear every day. His spirit comes and speaks to us and tugs on us in moments when he's calling us. And if we say, no, I don't want to do that right now, like many of my friends who are sitting on that row, your life may be destined for a very sad ending without Christ. So I plead with you, if you don't know him today and you're sitting in our congregation, give your life to him while you can. And, by the way, if you're watching on on. YouTube today, same thing. Give your life to Christ while you can. Because the day will come and the door will close. And uh, this Christmas, uh, 2021, who knows? But I know it's coming soon.